Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, and as we continue working through Paul's epistle, epistle to the Galatians, we'll be in chapter 4 this morning, verses 8 through 20. So if you have your copy of the Word, take it up and, and read along with me. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, but I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which were by nature are no gods, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather, are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me. At all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye may affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always and a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail and birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we give you thanks and pray for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to attend both the preaching and the hearing. We are thankful for the Apostle Paul's example and the evidence of his love for the church revealed in this letter. We ask that you lead us now with humble hearts before your word of truth as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'll confess I'm a little distracted this morning. Marion, have you ever attempted a baptism without a recipient? All right, I'm going to shake that off as best I can. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known someone you would characterize as blunt? Blunt. Bert, don't look at me that way. 
Do you know what I mean by blunt? Someone, and maybe even a sort of an extreme version of blunt, someone whose bluntness becomes harsh, maybe, or you receive it as unkind. Seems like the only emotions in their toolbox are anger, frustration, disappointment, and judgment. They have little capacity for positive affirmation or praise of any sort. Rarely do they exhibit pure joy, and we doubt they are capable of entering into any kind of real wonderful experience. They have little appreciation for nuance, and they see everything as black and white. Do you know someone who is blunt? But maybe we also know that perpetually pleasant person who is always chipper, always sunny, always ready with a compliment or a kind word, and has just the right thing to say at all times. We marvel at these people, don't we? We are drawn to them. We see the good outworking of many biblical principles and, and exhortations, but as we get to know them a little better and as time goes on, we know, may notice that the person also never seems to notice the obvious wrongs around them. And they never take note of blatant offenses. They remain silent in the face of moral failure and are personally reluctant to volunteer an apology or to pursue repentance. They may be almost incapable of disagreement or completely unwilling to correct, admonish, or even exhort a brother or sister. They tend to be easily offended by the blunt person and deny the existence of storm clouds in a relationship. That beautiful trait becomes a mark of insecurity, a lack of conviction, fear of conflict, and a desperate need for only smooth and positive sailing in life. As we consider these two types of people, Mr. Blunt and Mr. Sunshine, shall we call them, we see stereotypes. Mr. Blunt may be what we think of as the theologian of the world. He dots his doctrinal I's and crosses his applicational T's. While those who are more worldly, shall we say, in their Christian convictions, for whom the narrow gate is a bit too constrictive, or who see narrowly only the love passages in Scripture, skipping over strong rebuke or discipline passages, that's Mr. Sunshine. I would like to contend that when we look broadly at the Apostle Paul, we see a man who destroys the stereotypes and is able to say, I urge you to become like me. The man who wrote 13 epistles and soared to the heights of the most profound theological concepts was also the man who plumbed the depths of love and care and compassion. Paul was not a perfect man. He was not a sinless man. And we have every reason to believe that he was not a man with rugged good looks, a chiseled body, perfect hair, designer skinny jeans, and filled with enticing words of man's wisdom. No, he loved God, and he loved God's people. And he was filled with God's Word and filled with God's Spirit and so he provides for us a wonderful example of Christian character that can be blunt and forceful, 
and corrective when necessary, but also able to encourage and affirm with thankfulness, admiration, and hopeful expectancy. Paul was one of those people who was lavish in his commendations and direct in his criticisms. For example, the church at Corinth was a troubled church with conflicts over leaders, over church discipline, food offered to pagan idols, the Lord's Supper, the role of women in worship, the use of spiritual gifts, and the list goes on. In short, Paul had a deep concern for the whole of the church. But listen to his opening paragraph in his first letter to the Corinthian church. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul expressed this kind of robust affirmation not only in his letters, but he could be as emotionally warm and expressive in person as he was in his letters. For example, as was read earlier in the service, Paul writes the church in Thessalonica. He says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul lived with and among the church members and, and developed affection for them and gave all that he had to them and for them. But when it was needed, Paul could also be direct and blunt. To do otherwise would have been less than truly loving. For example, later in 1 Corinthians, after that warm, commending opening, he writes in chapter 11, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not. He is not taking away with the left hand what he has just given with the right. No, he is being straightforward and blunt and loving and truthful. But Paul knew the limits of a rebuke and correction, that it should be brief and redemptive if at all possible. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where he expresses his concern for a disciplined brother, a brother whose discipline he himself had encouraged. He writes, beginning at verse 6, This punishment which was inflicted, inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I think that's beautiful but all the more beautiful because Paul had the moral fortitude and the emotional ability to say, I do not commend you. I praise you not. As well as, I thank God for you. He will sustain you to the end. 
but also forgive and comfort, I urge you to reaffirm your love. This is the kind of robust emotional maturity we should all pursue. Paul was a good elder brother in Christ, one whose example we should follow. He had the true heart of a pastor. And as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, I think we find more evidence in this passage before us of his shepherd's heart. Since the middle of the second chapter, Paul has been busily engaged in a theological argument in his efforts to reclaim the Galatian churches for the gospel. He has employed the Old Testament extensively to show how the gospel that he preached to the Galatian churches was the truth. Not only has Paul cited specific passages from Deuteronomy 27, Leviticus 18, and Genesis 15, and so many more, but he has also called upon the Exodus narrative to characterize the nature of the freedom that the gospel of Christ brings. Israel was imprisoned by the law, enslaved to it, and under its curse. But Christ brings freedom. Likewise, the Gentiles were imprisoned under false teaching and vain philosophy. Both Jews and Gentiles were imprisoned by the elemental principles of the world. Yet Jesus Christ came and delivered both Jew and Gentile from the curse of the law so that they might enjoy the freedom of life in the Spirit. God freed them, not by their works of obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus. Salvation and justification were by faith, not by works. And so here in the middle of chapter 4, we find a brief respite from Paul's theological argumentation. And as in the beginning of this epistle, he personally engages the Galatians. He draws attention to his own conduct among them. We find some very personal statements by the apostle that give us insight into his own struggles. In the end, however, Paul's personal references culminate not in an exaltation of himself, but rather the self-sacrificing character of his ministry. We have been listening to Paul the Apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith, writes John Stott, but now we are hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul, the passionate lover of souls. And what was the goal of his ministry? It was to see Christ formed in the Galatian Christians. Indeed, it is this goal, Christ formed in his people, that should be the desire and goal of every minister of the gospel and every member of his church. To keep his beloved Galatians from slipping back into slavery, the Apostle Paul reminds them how they have become the children of God in the first place. From today's text, we learn three things that distinguish a son from a slave. A true son is a child of God and is someone who, and for you note takers, here's our three points, who knows the freedom of God's grace, Number two, enjoys the ministry of God's Word. And third, is transformed into the life of God's Son. Let's then consider this text under those three general headings. First, 
to be a child of God is to know the freedom of God's grace. But even more basic than this, a Christian is someone who knows God and is known by God, beginning now at verse 8. But then, indeed, when you do not know God, you serve those things which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. There was a time when the Galatians did not know God at all. Most of them were Gentiles, and thus they were unacquainted with the God of the Bible. They worshipped pagan gods and goddesses. At Lystra, there was a temple to Zeus. In Iconium, they worshipped the mother goddess Zizimini. All throughout Galatia, people belonged to the Roman imperial cult. Of course, none of these deities were really gods at all. They were mere idols. Yet, because demonic influences were at work, bowing down to false gods brought real spiritual bondage. Such bondage is the natural condition of humanity apart from the knowledge of God. When Paul and Barnabas arrived the first time in the city of Lystra, God healed a man lame from birth. Immediately, the crowds declared Paul and Barnabas to be the god Zeus and Hermes. The Galatians in Lystra were welcoming to Paul and Barnabas to the point that the chief priest of Zeus was prepared to offer sacrifices in order to honor them. The people worshipped out of fear, the fear of offending gods and having their own cities destroyed. Like many today, they lived in constant fear of disappointing the panoply of idols. But Paul and Barnabas would have none of it. They tore their clothes and rebuked the people, but the crowd's enthusiasm only swelled. And here in verse 8, Paul reminds the Galatians of their past idolatry. The gold, the wood, the silver, and the marble, and the ivory images of false gods were nothing in themselves. But idols are not cute, innocent, they're not playful or even harmless. Idols represent not gods, but demons. Demons who would delight to put us under their bondage. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul quotes, questions how, now that they know God, that they are known by God, how can they possibly return to their previous ways? To these weak and beggarly elements which would enslave them. To these foolish idols Surely anyone that receives such grace and undeserved favor as to be adopted by God could never go back to such an orphanage, right? Yet Paul is letting them know that's exactly what they were trying to do. Almost flabbergasted, Paul criticizes the Galatians for observing days and months and seasons and years. The days likely in view here are the various feast days of the Old Testament, the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Booths, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets. Under the influence of the Judaizers, they were failing to see that these things pointed to and had their fulfillment in Christ. 
For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now appear in, pre in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9. And so Paul lets out a sigh of discouragement and writes in verse 11, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. He feared all was lost because they were trying to turn back and they were returning to the bondage of the law rather than living in the Christ-given freedom from the curse of the law. They were regressing from light back into darkness, from grace into law, from the freedom of the wilderness, from the freedom of the wilderness to the bondage of Egypt. And the second mark that distinguishes God's children is their love for their father's instruction. To be a son or daughter of God is to know the blessed enjoyment of God's word. Verses 12 through 16. Brethren, I urge you to become like me before I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial was in my flesh. You did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? The Galatians counted themselves happy when they first heard the good news about Jesus Christ and as the gospel was preached to them. When Paul first came into Galatia to bring the gospel, he set himself along with the people, living with them in like manner to them. He became like them. He required no special treatment, but only wanted to know them and to show them the love of Christ. And they received Him with open arms, not despising and not rejecting Him. In spite of this physical ailment, they received Him as the angel of God, as an emissary or a messenger from heaven. When Paul says that the Galatians did not reject him, he literally says that they did not spit at him, as pagans usually did when they saw someone they thought was disfigured by a demon. Now, we don't know what Paul's physical infirmity was with certainty, but we might surmise that it was related to his eyes because he reminds them that they, were so, embra they so embraced him and his message that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. By the use of this descriptive hyperbole, Paul is letting them know they were all in when he proclaimed the gospel to them. There were no reservations. They didn't hold anything back for him. They would have done anything for him. If it would have helped him, as he preached, they literally would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to Paul so that he would continue. Now that's hospitality. However, however unattractive Paul may have been, the Galatians did not reject him. Instead, he writes, they received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Rather than treating him as if he had a demon, they greeted him like an angel. 
Indeed, they gave him the kind of welcome that would have give, they would have given to Christ himself. The reason for their warm welcome was not so much that they loved Paul, though they did, as it was they loved God's Word. They recognized that Paul was an apostle, an official messenger of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they received his ministry the way God's children always receive their Father's Word, with real joy. Pastors should not be judged by their ability, or their appearance, or their personality, their popularity, or any other standards ordinarily used to judge men. Pastors should be primarily evaluated by their faithfulness to the Word of God. If they are faithful, then to welcome their message is to welcome Christ Himself. Unfortunately, the Galatians were starting to turn against Paul. They may not have wronged Paul before, but they certainly seem to be wronging him now. Their hospitality was turning into hostility. He wonders, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? His gospel has not changed. He is still proclaiming good news. The good news about the cross and the empty tomb. He is still preaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet the Galatians were starting to reject the one true gospel. Pastors who are faithful to God's word often tell people that they don't want to hear. But if it really is God's message, God's true children will rejoice to hear it. They know that if their loving father is telling them something they would prefer not to hear, it must be for their own good. They know that it is a blessing, and though it may be difficult at first, when the flesh cries out, no, and their worldly philosophies are jeopardized, they will indeed yield to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and through the means of grace, they receive it with joy. And the third mark of God's children is that they are transformed into the life of God's Son. Something beautiful happens to people who enjoy the ministry of God's Word. And that's easy to say as I look out at a beautiful congregation. The more they receive the Word, the more they start to look like Jesus. They start to think the things Christ thinks. Love the things Christ loves. Do the things Christ would have them to do. And even suffer the things He suffers. As Paul puts it, until Christ is formed in you. Verses 17 through 20. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. That you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. We see here that the Judaizers also want the Galatians to be transformed, don't they? But not for good. The Judaizers were the wrong kind of zealots. In their misguided zeal for the law, they told the Galatians that they had to become Jews in order to be good Christians. 
This heretical teaching had the result of dividing the Jews from the Gentiles inside the church where we are all supposed to be one in Christ. It also had the result of turning the Galatians away from Paul and the one true gospel of free grace. The Judaizers seemed to have envied Paul's missionary success. What they really wanted was their own disciples, as false teachers always do. So they tried to win the Galatians away from Paul by flattering them and courting their affections. But Paul was not zealous to attract followers to himself. In fact, he pushed against such tendencies as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, Paul was zealous for Christ, for the gospel, and for God's people. That is why Paul writes in verse 12, I became like you. It is part of his missionary MO, as it were. You will recall the longer version from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. The apostles' ultimate goal as a gospel zealot was to see Christ take shape in the lives of his people. To see Christ formed in them. Back at the end of chapter 2, he said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now he wants the same Christ to live in the Galatians in the same way. This ought to be the goal of every pastor. Not the favor of men, but the formation of Christ. As Calvin observed, if ministers wish to be something, let them labor to form Christ, not themselves and their hearers. However, this kind of spiritual formation doesn't happen overnight. Just as it takes a while for the baby once conceived to grow in his mother's womb, to be born and continue to grow into adulthood, so the Spirit gradually uses God's Word to grow God's children more and more into the likeness of God's Son. The more our lives are shaped into the image of Christ, the more consistent we will be in our Christianity. Paul touches on this in verse 18 when he says, But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. Apparently, the, the apostle had discovered that some people behave differently when they are in the presence of the pastor. Do you do this? Does your vocabulary change? become less colorful when the pastor is around? Is your conversation more spiritual 
when you're in the company of the pastor. As Christ is formed in us, we will be more like Christ all the time, whether or not the pastor is around and whether or not mom and dad are around. And finally, Paul concludes his passionate pastoral plea to the Galatians in verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Having faithfully planted the gospel seed as an evangelist and being convinced that many of the Galatians had indeed been conceived into the Christian faith, Paul does not abandon the task but continues to labor as in childbirth so that that which was conceived is nurtured unto labor and delivery and evidence of Christ's formation in them is shored up and made visible in their gospel life. Paul's pastoral heart is to see his Galatian spiritual little children to grow up into spiritual maturity, no longer subject to the influence of the Judaizers, but rather looking unto Christ alone for all that is required in their Christian life. But at the time of his writing, there is doubt, and there is a need for this strong exhortation to be blunt. In person, Paul might have moderated his tone, but nevertheless, he was still concerned and frustrated over the fact that the Galatians had embraced this false gospel. Paul wanted the Galatians to follow him as he followed Christ. He wanted them to become like him and forsaking the bondage of the law. Again, he wanted to see Christ formed in them. The bottom line is that the role of a pastor is to point beyond himself to Christ. The desire and joy of a pastor is fulfilled when he says with John the Baptist, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. And so as we come to the end of this text, we come to the application. The so what of the text. And I'd like to step back, as it were, from the particulars of the text a little bit and try to see more the general principles and take note of this pastor-congregation relationship that is on display here. So consider with me, if you will, these relational points that can be found in the text. And I'm going to kind of ramble through the passage in front of you. But here, here are some relational passages. They welcomed him, though they knew his infirmities. He preached the gospel to them, and they heard and received his message. Paul knew they were blessed by the word and that they enjoyed it. There was a relationship there. They loved Paul so that he could say, you would have plucked out your eyes and given, given them to me. He kept up with the church life, even when he was far away, enough to see their errant trajectory. He feels sufficient liberty to address their errors. He knew who they were before the gospel. He knew their response to the gospel. And so he could therefore challenge their returning to these beggarly elements. He is also known to them so he can urge them to become like him. He lived his life before their eyes so that they could use him as a role model. He calls them brethren. 
He assumes the health of their relationship. You have not injured me at all. In other words, as far as I know, there is no offense. He can ask them hard, personal, relational questions and say hard, personal things. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I am afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain for you. I have doubts about you. He longs to be with them. I would like to be present with you now and change my tone. My little children, he says. All of these relational character, you start to step back and see as you read the text and enter into the narrative as it were. Not only did they have a shared history and relationship together, they had shared shared experiences. The church, when Paul preached, received his preaching as the very word of God. And they were blessed. You received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was this blessing you enjoyed, he asked them. As we look at this, I would like to suggest, therefore, that we at Heritage need to pray. We need to pray, Jesus, come to me by the preaching of your word. And we need to pray for your preachers, whoever they may be, whenever they fill the pulpit. Not just, please bless the preacher as he speaks or studies. But Lord, the way you have organized your church and established the world and accomplished your purposes is to feed me through the preaching of your word. So please bless my hearing and my heart to receive it and to feast upon it. And that it would fall on a well-prepared soil and, and bring forth good fruit. As I come to worship, draw me out of myself and into your presence that I might not be distracted and consumed upon my own cares, problems, and desires. We need to pray that we would see Jesus and not the man. We need to pray that we would hear Jesus and not the man. We need to praise our wonderful and mysterious, omnipotent God. A God that is mighty and able and indeed desirous to use the foolishness of preaching to proclaim the gospel, to change lives, and to accomplish His redemptive purposes, that Christ may receive all the glory, and not any man. When we see the gates of hell falling back before the progress of the gospel, and we find preaching there in the midst of it, we should shout, glory to God, for no flesh will glory in His presence. As our dear pastor often reminds us, worship is the fountainhead out of which all of life flows. We should therefore prepare for worship and come to worship the Almighty God, expecting to hear Christ and desire to have Christ formed in us. And we are not here to fill our head with more knowledge or doctrine, and we're certainly not here to be entertained. We're here to worship. And we also see in this text that it is all too easy to forget God's faithfulness in this pastor-congregate relationship. Verses 15 and 16. You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. 
Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Do you see how easy it is to forget? They would have given him their eyes and now he's become an enemy. And this is sadly, heartbreakingly common in the church. Years of faithful service forgotten. Years of sweet fellowship in Christ forgotten. All because a truth, a truth we are bound to tell has been told. Or because a mistake was made. Or a sin wasn't forgiven. It seems like we as people have these expectations and needs that we want to get met. And as long as they're being met, everything is fine. But the moment someone challenges us or comes up short, we say goodbye. How would you respond if a brother or an elder or a sister saw the need to confront you on a particular matter? Now, take in mind that all of this needs to be checked by God's Word. It's God's Word that instructs us. But in love, a brother or an elder comes up to you and confronts you on a matter. Would you receive it and know that it was done in love? Or would you recoil in your spirit and retreat? Would you lash out? Please know that we as pastors feel the weight of Ezekiel 3 that was read earlier. We must live the role of the watchman and sound the warning Faithfully speaking the truth, even when it strains a relationship, we're bound to. And it's not necessarily pleasant, but we love God and we love God's people. And we're motivated by love. And you need to be motivated by love for one another as well. And grow in your relationship so that you can come alongside a brother and shore him up. Or to point out perhaps a blind spot that he has. And considering these observations, the application, this one application that I see is fairly simple to state, but it'll take, uh, it'll take time. And it may be a little uncomfortable, especially for some. This is love, guys. Don't get down. Don't get quiet. I contend that we need to be resilient in our relationships. And resilient is the word I want you to remember. Verse 19, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. Get the picture here. Paul uses an analogy, a picture of a woman in the travail of childbirth. It's almost embarrassing in a way, but yeah, he needed something to capture the intensity of it. You don't go have a baby, do you? Laura, does it just happen like that? No, there's labor involved and it takes time and effort and you need to be diligent and it's all throughout the pregnancy and the labor and delivery and everything after. It is all of love. We should be able to say with Paul, I want to see Christ formed in you and I am willing to bear the pains of childbirth to see that happen. Therefore, we have to learn to speak the truth and love to one another. Truth in love. We need to learn to receive an exhortation in love. We need to desire to grow in godliness and in love for one another. We need to see the necessity of unity and desire the blessings of unity and pursue unity. 
Don't ignore broken or strained relationships. Keep short accounts and be eager to forgive quickly. We know this. We're doing this. Let's do more and more of it. Resilient relationships are deep relationships, transparent relationships, humble relationships, and edifying relationships. Therefore, we need to grow in depth, transparency, and humility, and in our capacity to build our brother and sister up. We haven't arrived, and we will never arrive touching this point. This is what we labor in. This is what we pursue. We pursue Christ, to be like Christ, and we would grow in all of these things as we do. We have to put off arm-length relationships You know what I mean by arm-length relationships? We don't let anybody in close. In these arm-length relationships, we need to put them off between every family, between the elders and the deacons, between the congregation and her officers. And we, here at Heritage, are so well-positioned to pursue such relationships, aren't we? Do you see that? You have elders committed for life. This isn't a come-and-go relationship. We love you. We are here. We are planted here with you, and we want to die here with you. Most of us live close to one another. The excuses, the, you know, it's just removed, but we have to be deliberate. We are members of this church. I don't know that there's an exception. By making a very deliberate decision, and for some it was costly, We have changed jobs and sold houses and so much more. How could any of us not want strong relationships with one another? While there will always be some relationships that are closer than others, this does not exclude the ability to have deep, transparent, humble, edifying relationships all the way around. All the way around. And so I guess that means we're up to the confession time, aren't we? To paraphrase Bilbo Baggins on the occasion of his 71st birthday, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. And I know less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Yes, the church has grown, but I have also been negligent. I need to do much better pursuing resilient relationships with everyone here because I do love you. But remember, it takes two to tango. A one-sided relationship is not a resilient relationship. We need to be in this all together. And as we don't confuse close relationships with resilient relationships, at the same time, let's, let's not see close and resilient as mutually exclusive. As we pursue these resilient relationships with one another, we will cultivate closer relationships, more meaningful friendships. None of this denies that there are good, strong relationships within the body right now. We're, it's, it's wonderful. Praise be to God. We are thankful, thankful, thankful. But to pursue resiliency is to pursue that which can weather the storms of life and provide comfort when there is death. The resiliency I am trying feebly, I might add, 
trying to describe should flow out of our love for Christ and also provide the relational environment where we can speak truthful, speak truthfully and encourage and exhort and rebuke all that is necessary so that Christ is maturely formed in us. And I hope that makes sense. It, you know, it was a burden on my heart. Perhaps I was preaching more to myself. But in the meantime, know that it is all good. In Christ, we are family. Objectively, we are members one of another. We have the same Heavenly Father. We have Jesus as our elder brother and mediator. And we all share in the same Holy Spirit. Our great God has ordained the means of His abundant grace and makes them freely available, readily available to all His children. And I am absolutely confident that He who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the word which you have preserved and given to your people. As we consider your chosen and appointed and gifted Apostle Paul, we give you thanks for using him mightily in your kingdom and for his faithful example so beautifully on display. We thank you for the pastoral heart that you gave to him and that which we can see his love for the church. Grow us, we pray. And stretch us and help us to be an ever more loving and more faithful church. Filled with resilient relationships. Always trusting in Christ alone for our every need. Knowing that He is the Good Shepherd. And the ultimate example and object of our faith. For it is in His name we pray. Amen.